Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. Today's guest is Christian Morgan. Christian Morgan is an ultramarathon athlete who focuses on long trail projects. He currently holds the second fastest completion of the Appalachian Trail, which he completed in 44 days, 4 hours, 54 minutes. Christian is currently gearing up for another attempt. One reason I wanted to talk to Christian was uh, for the obvious reason, he's gearing up for another attempt to cover the 2000 plus mile trek that is the Appalachian Trail. Uh, But I wanted to hear a little bit of his background too. I think one of the things I find really interesting about these long trail and just, I guess, long haul type individuals is there's an element to ultra marathoning that I find really interesting in the single day stuff, like the hundred mile distance or around that type where you get this kind of approach of uh, obviously doing more of them gains you experience and this ability to likely better navigate situations that you were unfamiliar with before. But there's also a little bit of this ignorance is bliss type of situation early on in, in ultra running. And when you do new distance for the first time where you just really don't know necessarily what you're getting yourself into, because you've never been in the situation before. And, you know, if things get dark during those times, the next time you do it, you go in with that knowledge. And I think it's, it's definitely manageable, obviously, although people wouldn't come back and do these things time and time again. But when we're talking about projects to the length of the Appalachian Trail and things that are taking 44 days in nature, I find it really interesting when people go back and do them again, because it's, it's almost a whole degree higher of that, like the number of like potential uh, problems that can arise in that sort of a project is just infinite. So having those type of situations present themselves over the course of prior attempts and then wanting to go back and do it again is really an interesting kind of piece to that puzzle. So I wanted to talk to Christian about that as well as just, you know, what got him into this type of stuff, what other things he's interested in and just his experience with these type of projects in general. Also, Coming up on the guest interview side of things for the podcast, I recently recorded an episode with Dwayne Scotty, who's a a physical therapist and a PhD who uh, is really into running. And I wanted to talk to him because he has a six-step process to grow as a runner where he really kind of breaks down some of the fundamental stuff that I think we oftentimes in the back of our minds kind of know or to some degree know. And making sure we're actually maximizing those before moving on, I think is a really important lesson to kind of remind yourself of. And then for those of you who are new to running or just getting into running, or maybe did running very unstructured in the past or looking to kind of fine tune things with a little bit more structure and things like that, I thought that would be an interesting episode. And Dwayne has is a wealth of knowledge in the terms of things like injury prevention, strength work, and that sort of stuff too, given the nature of his his PhD. So that one is actually up right now on the show Patreon page. If you're interested in the early release episodes, you can find it there. Uh, That is one way to support the Human Performance Outliers podcast, as well as, like I said, get those early release episodes where I put them up there right after I'm done recording them. So they tend to hit that quite a bit before they hit the general podcast platforms. And you also get ad-free intro free there. So if you're the type of person who wants to just get right to the specific topic, it's another great option to both support the show and check that stuff out that way. 
you can find that at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO, which also happens to be the main landing page for the show. So you can also find the catalog of prior episodes if you want to check out to see some of the topics that I've discussed on there in the past. Uh, speaking of the catalog, I've released a couple episodes recently that I think have uh, gotten a, a fair bit of interest and I've gotten a lot of notes and messages sent to me about them. So if you haven't checked those out, there's one on just the idea of running solo, meaning like one run per day versus splitting into two or what we call as runners two a days sometimes. And it's not always as clear as one would think. I think sometimes the mindset is once you get to a certain volume, it's time to start adding a two days. That's certainly true in many cases, but it's not necessarily like the only reason why you would maybe do a two a day versus a single training session. So I dive into some of the variables that uh, are worth considering when you're planning out the way you structure your runs. And <clears throat> granted, one of the things I mentioned in that episode is a lot of times your lifestyle and your obligations drive that. And I think that probably is the biggest thing people should consider is uh, how you're managing the rest of your life around your running and what way you're, is going to maximize your potential to thrive as a runner, but also not have it impede negatively on the rest of your life. Uh, recently, actually, the last episode I released was on long runs. There's been uh, a lot of uh, good conversation around long runs with ultra ultra marathons recently. And uh, I thought I'd just dive into a little bit and just share kind of some of the things that we know about long runs and then maybe some of the things we don't and just share some of the value or some of the variables that are probably worth considering when you're deciding as an ultra runner how to build out your long runner your long run because ultra marathoning in general tends to be less explored from thorough research standpoint compared to some of the shorter olympic distance events and we oftentimes are extrapolating out the research we have from other events that are shorter in nature or same in duration, but different mechanically like triathlon. And then also leaning on a lot of anecdotes from what other people have done in the past. So I tried to unpack a lot of that stuff on that one. So if you're interested in fine tuning the way you go about your long run or considering why you're doing your long run the way you are, that would be a great episode to check out as well. All right, before we get rolling with this show, just a couple more announcements. One is I help host a group run on Sunday mornings in Austin, Texas. We often meet at Metz Park at 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. We actually have two starting times. So basically the way it works is if you want to run a little bit longer, come to the 8 o'clock so you can double dip and start at 8 and 9. If you're looking just to get a nice little recovery run in, uh, 9 o'clock is the bigger group. So that's kind of how that's set up. If you're looking for details specifically from one week to the next, head over to the Instagram page, which is just at outliersatx. Also, if you're looking for some coaching support, I've got a bunch of options on my website from just pre-made plans that I've written for 5K all the way up to 100 miles, multi-level, uh, so a little bit for everybody on there, as well as my one-on-one -on -one coaching options if you want to work directly with me. They're tiered up to very frequent communication. And then also, if you just want to hop on a call and chat about something, uh, you can sign up for consultations there as well. So that all can be found at zachbitter.com. Finally, one of the podcast's main sponsors for this year are my friends at LMNT Electrolytes. LMNT makes these really cool packets of multiple different flavors of electrolytes that I love to add to my beverages when I'm trying to top off what I lost when training and just from day to day. Their options right now on their core lineup include citrus salt, raspberry salt, orange salt, raw, which is just plain, 
mango chili, chocolate salt, lemon habanero, and watermelon salt. My two go-tos at the moment, watermelon salt and chocolate. They're two very different experiences. The chocolate I'll oftentimes mix with warm beverage, which is part of their warm beverage lineup. Usually that means about a half a packet of that in my coffee in the morning before I go out for a run. If I'm going to be out there for a while or it's going to be hot, I'll oftentimes throw some of that watermelon salt inside uh, whatever bottle I'm carrying with me for that particular effort. Right now, Element T is running a promotion. If you are a fan of the Human Performance Outliers podcast and you go to them through here, they're going to give you a free sample pack of those flavors I mentioned so you can try them out and decide if it's something you want to add to your routine. So if you go there and make a purchase, you'll get that free sample pack allowing you to try all their flavors and decide if you want to come back for a specific flavor. To do that, just go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. Link for that will be in the show notes as well as at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. One final note on those. The Element Electrolytes Electrolyte Blend includes 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. If you're interested in electrolyte and hydration information, I recorded an episode. It's episode 300 of the Human Performance Outliers podcast, where I dove into personalizing your electrolyte and hydration needs. Christian, how's it going, buddy? Yeah, it's pretty good. It's nice to finally meet you. I've been following you for some time. So um, I, I feel um, pretty honored. Yeah, uh, things are going pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm excited to talk to you. I think um, the world of ultra marathon, ultra marathon type stuff and fastest known times and all these different like outdoor pursuits are sort of lumped into the same sports category of like ultra distance stuff. But as you know, it, there's such a wide variety within the sport. And I think one of the questions I get asked a lot on podcasts is like, well, what is an ultra marathon? And I'm like, well, you know, like 50 K on a road is an ultra marathon and thousands of miles across mountain ranges is also an ultra marathon. So it's like, it's kind of hard to pin down to some degree. And you're a little bit to the, to the extreme end of the, 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 the spectrum, I would say at this point. Right. Yeah. I, I've had different, um, phrases you know uh one of them some people like to say day that's one thing um i've had someone else call it an adventure run so i mean but it's still an ultra marathon and uh yeah yeah but definitely leaning towards the longer stuff um with, with the uh fkt on on you know that that um i've been pursuing for a while now yeah mm-hmm yeah, I wanted to talk to you a bit about the Appalachian Trail specifically because that was maybe one of the first really kind of like long, you know, multi, it seems almost like it's not giving up justice saying multi-day because it's like over a month. <laughs> <laughs> but like one of these pursuits of like you have this interesting route, which happens to be the entire Appalachian Trail. And yeah. you get these individuals, yourself included, who want to see how fast you can do it. Some people do it supported, some unsupported. There seems to be some different protocols or been some different protocols as kind of like what is the best way to like go about a project like that. Um, I believe you've you've uh, went at it three times now, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Yeah. Last year was my third attempt at the, at the uh, Appalachian Trail. Yeah. Awesome. You want to give us a little uh, rundown of kind of like what got you interested in the Appalachian Trail and kind of how those different attempts uh, played out? 
Yeah, for sure. You know, um, so I met Carol Sabe, who's the current fastest known time record holder in uh, at Marathon de Sables in the desert, uh, in uh, the Sahara Desert. And uh, we hung out and I, I got along with him pretty well. And he told me he'd, he he said he was going to go for the PCT. He was going to hike it. He never told me he's going to go for the, the fastest known time. Anyway, later on on Strava, I see this post and it's like one of those Strava posts and it said, uh, Carol sets new record on the PCT, the Pacific Coast Trail. So I reached out to him, congratulated him um, and said, yeah, what you just did was pretty amazing, man. I didn't know you were going to like, you know, run, run the thing in, in the record time. And then he, he said, thanks, I've got a project coming up. I'm thinking about uh, going after the Appalachian Trail. Uh, northbound supported record which I guess um, was held by Scott Jurek uh, even though at the time when Carol went for it it was held by uh, the fastest known time was held by Joe McConaughey but like yeah there's north there's south there's the supported unsupported so I guess it was um, the next thing was uh, so after I met Carol in the desert uh, and then uh, you know fast forward to 2018 um, I went out there as a kind of, I guess uh, people call them paces, but I wouldn't really call it a pacer because you're really running behind the runner um, on one of these things. And I was more of a mule, I would guess. I was holding, you know, sometimes his, some sometimes his phone, uh, uh, the tracker, uh, food, drinks, um, you know, whatever he wanted to kind of off offload to me. And then uh, on, a, on a couple of occasions, I did run in front of him, but it was running with Carol uh, for, for those um, for, for that time in 2018 that inspired me to, you know, just get into this myself and think, oh, I, I think actually, actually, I think I could do this. So it was it was pretty much being directly involved with the record attempt itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I. I think it's like, it's one of those things just in running in general. I know when people are not in the sport quite yet or at all, and then sometimes someone just will invite them to come to something and they'll watch just like, just the emotions of kind of like the day play out for a specific individual. And then, so like sometimes crewing for somebody at an ultra marathon is like the gateway in. So I would imagine being a big piece to a project like that would definitely like pique your interest. And for someone like yourself, maybe ask like, well, what happens if I do this or I wonder what I could do in this type of a situation. Yeah, yeah. The, the, there's no question because I, I was running, I think my, my days were around 35 miles a day with him. And I did about, I think it was 16 days. So just about one third of his attempt. Um, and I thought, I wonder what it would be like to run 53 miles a day for, you know, 41 days. You know, is that possible? Because I can handle this, what I'm doing right now. And, you know, there's always that question, isn't there? Like, can, could I do this? And then I think that's the great thing about life. Um, if you're courageous enough, you can find out because you just give it a go and you have a try. So, yeah, just to add some flavor to the specific route too. So the listeners are aware, like, cause when you say 53 miles a day or 35 miles a day, um, we're talking about the Appalachian trail here. So it's not like a nicely paved sidewalk that you're traveling that distance on. There's a little bit of up and down and some technical variety and things like that. What's the actual profile look like for the entire Appalachian trail from uh, elevation gain and loss and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So the whole trail is uh 2000, 
um, 100 and I think it's like 98 miles now. It changes a few miles each year because of rerouting. And so, yeah, you're talking about just under 2,200 miles and it's uh, the elevation gain <clears throat> uh, and uh, loss is, uh, I think it's 465,000 feet of up uh, and 465,000 feet of down. So it's like 16 Everests over 2,200 miles <laughs> from yeah. sea to summit. Yeah, you know, not base camp kind of thing. Right. Yeah. It's incredible to think about because uh, it just said definitely like you think of essentially half a million miles up <laughs> or feet up along the course of the route. Yeah. Uh, it's It makes it a little more difficult. And, and I would imagine like that sort of terrain just gets drastically more uh difficult as you kind of carry along because you're you know you're out there for you know if you're as fast as carl 41 days or like like you or joe or carl and scott you know in the mid 40s so it's a long time to be out there a lot of nights to try to sleep what is it like trying to kind of balance like a schedule while you're out there in terms of just knowing like this is a big physical toll um sleep is probably one of the more potent recovery tools but the quality of that i would imagine is subpar throughout the course of it what is what is it like kind of going into that and then how does that actually play out when you're out there yeah you're right i mean every day you know part of progress is just being still and sleeping and recovering i mean otherwise you can't you can't get up and do it again the next day so I know some of these uh, shorter trails like the Colorado Trail, Michael McKnight would go at it and pretty much just not sleep and or have cat naps on the trail. And But I think with 2,200 uh, miles, you really need to have some kind of routine to get into. Uh, you, you can't just have an hour in here and there. Uh, so... I mean, how it works for, for me, um, I would start the day, the alarm would go off at 3.30 a.m. Uh, and I'd be up. And the first thing I'd want to do is drink some black coffee and eat some oatmeal, you know, get some food and some caffeine in me. And then uh, my aim was always to be starting by 4 a.m. and start running on the trail. And uh, you've got a couple of hours of darkness already ahead of you. Sunrise was around 6.30 that time of year I did it, like on the 1st of June. Um, and then, yeah, you, you've got to run all day and, and then you get to the nighttime and you've got to try to sleep. So there's a lot of things to take into account. Like, you know, you, uh, you, know, you want to kind of uh, limit how much liquid you're drinking towards the nighttime. Otherwise, you're going to be up all night peeing. Uh, uh, having said that, I still did get up every night once and, and go to the toilet in the middle of the night, which was really annoying, but it's just something my body needed to do. So I did that. So the, the, the peeing is one thing that disturbs your sleep. The other thing is, I mean, the, the things like bugs one night, my, um, I had a roof tent on top of a Toyota Tacoma and the, the, the door, the zip door was left open. And I got in there and I'd remember that night, I think I had about seven or seven and a half hours, you know, good amount of sleep. I mean, that's a good amount of sleep on the Appalachian Trail. And I got in there and I zipped up and I just zipped myself in a roof tent full of bugs and I didn't sleep that night. And that was terrible. I was like, this was my opportunity to recharge in all night. And I ended up getting out and getting some spray. So then there's the things like bugs and uh 
and then there's also worry as well because when you're in like what you got to do is you've got to check your body for ticks um because those uh what are they like deer ticks with lyme disease yeah mm -hmm. you know what you don't want to do is you don't want to be getting lyme disease so you've got to check your body and then if you don't check your body because you're too tired and believe me some nights i just went to sleep you're lying there and you're you're a little bit stressed so um you're thinking of things um and then on top of all that there's actually pain i mean there's a lot of physical pain so for the first few nights david horton and carl Meltzer had told me i mean they just said do it for the whole thing you know they said take uh tyrannol pm to you know take it a cut half an hour an hour like have it with your dinner about half an hour an hour before you go to bed and i did that to begin with uh and, and what happened was the tyrannol pm would wear off after about four hours and i'd wake up with the mo the pain would wake me up mm. because the 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 painkiller had worn off so i decided after a couple of nights actually to embrace that pain before i went to sleep and um so like just lying there shutting your eyes take feeling the pain and saying you know what this is all part of it and i slept a lot better without the the, the tyrannol pm so i'm that didn't work for me so yeah there's lots of lots of things you've got to do um to to try to maximize your downtime and there's so many elements that can affect it also outside noise one night there was a bunch of people like having a loud conversation um and i just had to say guys you know i, I mean i want to get some sleep can you just quiet it down a little bit and then uh so, so yeah there's a lot of factors that can help or help your sleep or affect your sleep in a bad way mm -hmm. yeah i there's i got so many questions now there's <laughs> i i had pete kosselnik on a while back actually it's probably a couple of years ago at this point uh just to talk about when he did the transcontinental run from san francisco to new york and after talking to him and some other people who had done that route it just became clear to me it's like you can almost have like this anxiety or paralysis going into something like this. I would imagine where you want to be planned, you want to be organized because it's a big undertaking that requires planning and organization. You don't want to have mistakes happen that would have been easily prevent prevented. But at the end of the day, there's an endless number of things that could potentially slow your progress. So at a certain point you have to just say, okay, I have a strategy I think this is going to work. Something won't, and I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to absorb it and move on and remedy that and kind of make sure it doesn't happen again. So there is, it does seem like it's like, there's this level of just kind of like trust you have to have in that you'll be able to problem solve to some degree along the way. Cause you know, like, you know, the, the bug spray, for example, like that's something where like, had you known that ahead of time, probably would have like, well, you probably would have zipped the tent up, but you know, so, so simple things like that, where I think people think like, there's no way I forgot to zip my tent up, but yeah, put yourself 30 days into something like this with sleep deprivation and fatigue beyond compare. And it's just like, um, who knows what's going to really be the mistake that you make at a certain point. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, it's a valid point is that you can plan as much as you like, but you need to be prepared to continue on when your plan falls apart. And, uh, and that happens on these on these longer events. Um, I'm sure it happens in 100 miles and <laughs> most parts of life. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, having a contingency plan is one thing. And, and, and definitely just going on an endeavor like this, the whole idea is that if you know what's going to happen, 
and you know you can achieve it, it's really not a challenge and it's really not an adventure. But what makes this um, a challenging adventure is you don't know what's going to happen and you don't know how you're going to mentally or physically react. And every day is almost a new discovery, a new realization, a new lesson. And yeah, you, you can plan. It's good to plan. Like you say, I mean, if you want to go into this, you need to be professional, but you also need to be prepared for the unknown as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing interesting that you mentioned too, is the Tylenol PM, because I think like my mind goes to like, for one thing, first of all, the PM nature of it maybe helps you fall asleep. Obviously the anti-inflammatory probably helps with that pain, at least for four hours. You learned fairly quickly that that maybe wasn't a solution for you, although it perhaps worked for Carl. Um, I always wonder about that because for one, you have this situation where like the real pain during this is going to be like the inflammatory process. And it's a weird thing because in performance, you probably want to remove that. So it's easier to move forward. But from a recovery standpoint, you're better off having that process kind of take its course. So you're kind of in this weird middle ground almost where you do have this block of time to sort of recover, you want to recover when you go to bed at night, but you also need to sleep to really do that optimally. And I always wonder like, are you, how much is the recovery optimal with something like a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory versus nothing? And it seems like at the end of the day, the going without it was a better route for you. It certainly was. Uh, I mean, I did a training week actually, um, uh, before I went six weeks out before I started, um, the, the record attempt, uh, I did a full training week with full record miles. I mean, that looking back, that was just a complete, uh, bad. I mean, it, it was a good idea because it gave me a lot of confidence. I just did a whole week at record pace, you know, mm -hmm. or pe record distance time, whatever. Um, and I, and I, I'm not injured and, you know, and I made it, but also, uh, six weeks out. I mean, what do you do then? Do you go into recovery? You just run 370 miles. Now you're going to, now you're going to recover. Then you're going to taper. I mean, it, so yeah, I'll, I'll do things different this year, but to answer your question, I actually did take Tyron LPM every night when I was doing the, uh, training week. Uh, I don't know what was different on the actual attempt itself. Maybe I just knew that there was one, one training week is not the same as kind of six or seven of those back to back. Uh, yeah, I just found out it wasn't good for me. And there's a lot of listening to yourself, but also sometimes you can't listen to yourself because there's a lot of pain. And, you know, I mean, if you want to make any kind of progress, it's sometimes that's what ultra sometimes is about. It's about really not listening to yourself and, and thinking, okay, I came to do this, let's finish it and see where it takes me. And I mean, that's, that's the whole beauty of um, achieving an ultra is that you, you sometimes you don't listen to your, you know, the negative talk or something like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Cause I always think like inevitably you're, you're going to start working against yourself mentally and your, your mind is going to start trying to tell you, Hey, you know, this isn't worth it, slow down, this went wrong. And then it's like, it's, you get stuck in that kind of negative spiral. And I feel like it just burns so much mental energy trying to fight that unless you're like, 
really tuned in to kind of like recognizing it for what it is and sort of dismissing it and, and carrying on, I would imagine for something like this, you just get very, very good at doing that almost on a daily basis. Yeah, you do. Um, but you're right about the negative self-talk. I mean, it. I remember when I was with Carol and he said the difference between this and I mean, I was only with Carol up to his day 26. So he was just after halfway through it. Um, so, I mean, he still had a, a lot of miles to run, but he said the difference between what I've experienced so far and a hundred miler is, you know, you have highs and lows in a hundred miler, but you know, this is just continuous, like lots of them continuously. So I think for me towards the end, uh, when I hit, um, uh, Vermont, New Hampshire and Maine, when the terrain just gets, I mean, like tougher than any of other part of the trail. Uh, I had a lot of negative self-talk and also cause I'd fell off record pace as well. So, um, it really is a, a battle, you know, and uh, you've got to have a good support team there to pull to, to, to pull you through. And you've got to have the I mean, that's the whole idea of a supported attempt is that you've got good support and, and they need to not really listen to you when you're complaining or something like that. I mean, would I say I got good at it? I mean, I didn't re I didn't get the records. Uh, I got the second fastest known time, which is um slightly annoying <laughs> but uh maybe if i was better at it i would have said a new fkt but uh i guess that's the draw to go back this year you know yeah i've got a couple questions about that i think like one is just like if you have a goal like that i want to break the record what's the process like going into the event knowing if this goal falls off the table am I going to have a motivation to stay out here and keep going? Because I know for like me and with my coaching clients, I, I, we're not trying to do 2000 miles typically. So like it's a, a single day ultra usually. And my, my, my advice to a lot of, a lot of people who are doing it is like, don't go in there with one goal. If you go in there with one goal, then if that falls off the table, you've got no reason to be out there. And if you have no reason to be out there at mile 70, when things are going terrible, you're going to drop out, but if you got a backup goal or some other motivator to stay out there, that's, what's going to kind of keep things moving in the right direction. Um, so is that, did you have that or did you have to come up with another goal to stay motivated while you're out there? Actually, I'd like to answer that in two parts, one sure. for last year and then my motivation um, going in with more than one goal for this year. So last year, um, I did. I wrote down, I think I wrote down a load of goals on fastestknowntimes.com when I when I said I was going to go into it. But it's easy to write stuff down and it's easy to say stuff. But unless you feel it from your heart, it doesn't mean anything. Because as soon as I fell off record pace, uh, I felt like a failure. You know, I didn't feel like. And then uh, Carl Meltzer phoned me up and he said, he said, if you, he said, you're four days ahead of second place, <laughs> you know, it's like, go and kill it, you know, go and, and he told me, he said that he called it the AT podium. He said, just, just, he said, if you achieve like what you do, you you know, you'll, your record will stand for years and you'll be so, feel so accomplished. So I think I didn't have a goal. Really. I mean, I wrote down all these goals and I told everyone, you know, I want to do this and I want to do that. But really, I was going after the fastest known time when I felt off 
when I fell off the pace, it really hurt me mentally. It really upset me. And so um, it was really hard to carry on. I think Carl's, you know, the advice from my crew, Carl's um, motivation saying, well, come on, like second fastest known time, you know, that's pretty impressive. Actually, um, what I'm going to do when I go back this year is I'm actually going to go for a southbound attempt. And now the reason behind that is if I go for a northbound attempt and I fall off record pace, it'll be deja vu 2022 20, last year. And I really don't know if I would have the motivation to continue to just repeat what I just did, you know, from last year. So by going southbound, um, I'm still going for the fastest known time because it's indiscriminate. If you're the fastest, doesn't mean if it's north or south. Um, so I can still chase the, the, the fastest known time. But if I do fall off record pace, then I've got four days um, to chase the 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 um the the fastest southbound and that for me then becomes my second goal and and fastest southbound currently is held by um carl Meltzer, and uh fastest northbound is carol sabe so there's a there's a nice goal in there and on top of that if i can be the fastest southbound and the second fastest northbound and the second and third fastest overall i think it's kind of cool you know there's some there's some cool things there, but that's what the difference will be about going last year and this year is the direction going south. Yeah, that that makes sense. I would imagine like it's like a, it's almost like a grander version of like if you run the same route every day, you get this little bit of refreshment when you just change that route, even if you go the opposite direction on it uh, and from just a mental standpoint is uh you know, when I was looking at some of the attempts and some of the more notable ones, it does seem like it's almost always uh, northbound where the faster times come. Is there a reason why people are normally going northbound versus southbound for that? Is it technically understood within the Appalachian Trail community that northbound is going to be a little quicker in most cases? Or, Well, actually, um, I think so in terms of like the Appalachian Trail and the culture, the through hiking culture, behind that so like a, for all the listeners out there a through hike is someone who throws a backpack on and in one calendar year finishes the 2000 plus miles so they're called through hikers um and and typically the i think it's 75 percent uh of, of those through hikers go north so it's a really popular direction to go for the through hikers and i know scott jurek when he went north spoke about I mean, his book's called North. He spoke about um, wanting to stick with the traditional way of doing the Appalachian Trail. Uh, but in, in terms of uh, the faster times being North, um, if you look at like Jenfar Davis, who actually didn't run any of this at all. In fact, she hiked all of it. She she did that South. So the, the male uh, fastest known time is North and the female fastest known time is South. Uh, and then the, the 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 third, the fourth fastest known time is also south. So, I mean, there is a mix in there. Um, I'd probably say that people who go south are kind of going against the grain uh, because most people go north. And, you know, I've always had it in my heart as well. I, I want to finish at the top of Mount Katahdin, which is a big 360 uh panoramic view as long as it's not cloudy and you finish on the top of this iconic mountain and you know whereas if down south um 
the the uh, the start of the Appalachian Trail, if you want to call it the finish, if you're going south, is just a a plaque on a rock surrounded by trees, and there's no view. So aesthetically, I would say, and it's it, it's kind of nicer to go north um, for the actual you know final standing on the the finish line. But uh, I like the idea now of actually just going against the, the you know the traditional way and just kind of going south there's a guy called andrew thompson um and he's the guy who jen davis she broke his record and he went north twice and then he he didn't set the record and he went south and he set it on his third attempt so mm. you know there's just some different ways of doing it there's but but i wouldn't say it's like or i think what you've got to look out for is that the three toughest states i would say bar pennsylvania which is somewhere in the middle um are probably uh vermont new hampshire and maine and they're in the north so i mean there's two ways of looking at it one um you save that till last when you you've i don't know how to look at it like you've built up some fitness or mm -hmm. <laughs> you've got your trail legs or you're near the end or two you could look at it if you're going south you start off on fresh legs but I mean, Scott Jurek tried to go for it in 2021 when I did, and he went south and he just got injured, um, you know, not not too long after on that through that tough terrain. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it can really beat you up that those three northern states. I wouldn't say there's a I, I wouldn't really say there's one's faster than the other, though. But that's only my opinion, you know. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, either way, you're going over 2,000 miles and half a million feet of climbing and descending. So it's, there's no easy way, whether you go one way or the other, I suppose. Um, one thing I did want to ask you about with this particular project specifically is like one thing I always find interesting about the sport of ultramarathon is you get into the 100 mile distance, you get to this point where like you do your first one. And there's sort of this little bit of ignorance is bliss type of a situation going on, assuming you did some training and kind of talked to people who've done it before and did your homework. And like you said, kind of go into it with a professional manner. Uh, you also are kind of armed with this, like you don't really know how bad it can get. So you're not like nervous or anxiety ridden because of that. Then you do a couple of them or one of them even, and then you sort of know what you're getting yourself into. And sometimes I think that can be both good because you have these opportunities to like correct mistakes you made that can possibly make things a little smoother, but it also can be kind of daunting knowing that you're gonna have to go through that again. I would imagine this is something just like at a whole nother level of that. So for you and others who've done multiple attempts, like how much does that weigh on you of just kind of like knowing how bad it can get and that you're likely going to have to push through some of that again, if you're, if you are to make it to the finish line uh, for another round. Yeah, and and to set a new fastest known time actually um, push push harder as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. I mean, it does weigh heavily on me. In fact, it weighs heavily on me that um, last year when I was out on the AT, I was saying, I, mean, I don't know if I was telling people out loud, but there was this thing going over in my mind that this is enough pain for one person for a lifetime. <laughs> You know, so yeah, I was saying there's no way I want to ever come back here again. Um, this this really is enough pain for a lifetime. And yeah, so to to actually say I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna put myself through that again, and some my even my crew have asked me, you wanna go through that again, Christian? Um, and I feel I've got unfinished business. Uh 
so yeah it does weigh heavily on me and i mean I, I'm, I'm kind of saying that this is my last attempt i've spent since 2018 helping set the record and then trying to set it myself so i mean it's i don't know it's like five years now on one particular fastest known time and it's enough you know i'm 46 years old now and just came 46 this month and you know i'm just really you know i miss 100 milers i miss a 50 miler i just miss you know buying like um an entry to a race and thinking that's it you know i've got to raise like twenty thousand dollars to do this i mean yeah. <laughs> the emails i've got to send that you know i just got another um, email today saying sorry we can't help you out and the the rejection you've got to take like it's not just the pain on the trail it's the whole fundraising it's you know like i'm i almost sound like i'm complaining um but i really yeah does it weigh heavily on me i mean hell, heck yes it really does and i think this is the last big dance for me and uh you know if i can pull everything together and i can actually make it to the start of the trail then yeah then there's all the pain to go through as well but i don't know there's something inside of me that just uh that just wants to just uh, tie up some loose ends. I don't feel I've given it everything that I've got yet and I feel I can do better. And I guess I wouldn't be trying to, you know, set a new record unless I thought I could do it. So somewhere inside of me, there's the belief that I can do this. And, um, but does it weigh heavily on me? It, it weighs so heavy. It does. Mm. Yeah, I would imagine. And if it doesn't, it's probably a sign that you're maybe not motivated because like, it almost would have to at this point, I would think, to some degree anyway. Um, I do want to kind of go back a little bit and ask you one other follow-up question about the sleeping process because I find this part so interesting. You mentioned that you had your alarm set for 3.30 in the morning and you're trying to hit the trail by 4. Was there a reason for that particular start time or did that just end up being kind of what worked conveniently to you? Because I remember when I talked to Pete, he had like, I think they were, he was, he originally started at like 5 in the morning, but then as the days played out, that drifted back to the point where he was just waking up at like 3, 3.30. So he's like, well, if I'm up, I might as well start. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, that was a page taken from Carol's book, uh, Carol Sabe. And, you know, I, 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 I like I was with him a lot. Um, I witnessed how the whole logistics went down with his attempt. Uh, and, and his philosophy was that um, but better to run um, two hours of darkness than looking forward to size and, and then have the energy of rise to kind of get a, a boost and then continue with your day then um you know run in the morning and then look look like run those two hours towards sunset when it's just then dark and there's you know so uh i, I mean i took that from carol but i'm actually um i think i'm gonna well i am gonna readdress that uh i want to make this more so you know i borrowed a lot of techniques from carol you know there's this saying monkey see monkey do, you know, you see someone successful and, and, and you kind of almost copy that to some extent, but what I want to do is I want to make it more my own. And I really felt that waking up at three 30 in the morning was one of the things, like you said, does it weigh heavy on my mind? What, what are the things that I'm negatively anticipating? And I guess one of the things is waking up at three 30 in the morning is for me, like waking up in the night. So 
I've decided if I have like a um, a 5 a.m. start and I wake up at 4.30, for me, just psychologically, 5 a.m. is the start of the day. That's how I process Like you get up and, and, it, and if you start doing something at five, that really is the start of this is my opinion of a day. But four o'clock, that's kind of the end of the night. So I'm going to, yeah, like I'm going to look to start at 5 a.m. and get up at 4.30. Um, so I want to adjust things uh, this year. And uh, so, yeah, and the reason behind starting at 3.30 was pretty much just um, borrowing some of Carol's techniques. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, one other topic I find really interesting about this, and I talked with Pete in pretty much pretty good detail with this, where it's just like what he was eating throughout the course of this and how he kind of planned that. And I, I mean, with the, with the like transcontinental type stuff, I mean, you're essentially living out of an RV sort of on the side of the road. And in theory, you have the opportunity to pretty much have an endless amount of food available and even some variety if you have a good crew that can kind of scrounge up what you're really craving on stops along the way. But I would imagine food supply on the Appalachian Trail is going to look a little bit different, even if you are able to get off the trail to find food spots and things like that. First of all, like, did you have a particular like dietary approach that you were kind of leaning on? And then how did you supplement that along the way with stops and things like that? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, I know, uh, I know of your diet and, um, I know there's various diets, Scott Jurek, hundred percent vegan, um, you know, Meltzer, what did he say? Uh, I think it was beer and candy. That's <laughs> <laughs> like Courtney DeWalter um, diet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So everyone's got their own, um, diets and everyone seems to have a, a level of success. I don't think one particular diet means success. So I think my, well, I, what I did was um, I, I decided I just wanted to be like an on, 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 you know, I wanted to, oh, if that's the wrong, to eat everything in mm -hmm. other words. So I didn't want to, um, and I wanted to try to get the macronutrients somewhat. Right. I didn't just want to eat all, all fat or I didn't want to just eat, um, just protein. So I guess I just had a combination of fats, proteins, and and carbohydrates in the form of, um, um, I mean, it's kind of like trail food. I mean, just uh, like the, the trail mix, you know, I mean, absolutely every stack, you know, I was, mm -hmm. I was eating, there wasn't anything that I wasn't eating that way, you know, you know, uh, McDonald's, you know, the, the, um steak which is loads of steak i didn't drink any beer you know but uh yeah all that stuff am i breaking up a bit a little bit but good? i think i think it all came through what i got was like that you were basically anything that was put in front of you for the most part but you did try to have some variety so that you weren't like lacking in specific macronutrients which makes sense i mean i would think like just the volume of food you're eating you're gonna get enough protein by by that i think the challenge for what you're doing is getting enough in I remember yeah. Pete said he would have like a couple of protein bars sitting next to him in his bed stand. So like in the middle of the night, he'd roll over for probably bed sores. I would imagine after a project like that, like 
And he was like, well, if I have an opportunity to eat something, I'm just going to do it. And it was kind of an, just as much an exercise of getting in enough calories as it was the, the moving and sleeping. Yeah, you, you have to always be eating. And, and um, you know, I did come on stock. I think it was even day one. I, it was to, to, you know, to go from, I mean, I, st- I, st- I typically eat about, I don't know, 2,000, 3,000 calories a day or something in normal life, 2,000 calories a day. And then to kind of jump to six, 7,000 or 8,000 calories, you know, that first day, my stomach was having some real problems. And, and uh, I ended up like not eating for a couple of hours and then not drinking for a couple of hours. And then I just got really just dehydrated. I, I couldn't eat a banana, you know, and to come back from that. So again, I think it was one of those things that we spoke about earlier on that, um, you know, you have this plan, but then you have to adapt uh, along the way and overcome challenges. And uh, and my stomach really was not agreeing with me on day one. It just just it was just hard to get it to jump up to that amount of calories. But yeah, just having uh, the volume of calories is really important. But I did find that if I had like a pint of Ben and Jerry's in the daytime and then tried to run, I just felt so sick. It was pretty (laughs) gross, you know, Um, but a pint of Ben and Jerry's on the nighttime, you could just drink, inhale that stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, before bed. Yeah. You could get away with a lot more. I would imagine you have that time to kind of digest without moving with it. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, it's been, it's interesting because I think like what you said echoes what I've heard from other people. Like I was aware of like Scott Jerk is a vegan and I assumed he probably maintained that during his, his project. And Carl was a little bit more just like, kind of like you, I think where everything he could get his hands on that was palatable and you didn't overthink it too much either. But um, is there any application for something like this where you go in a little heavier than you would normally for like, I guess like an ideal weight that you would normally be at. So you have a little bit of a, like a, I guess a mobile aid station (laughs) built on you. Yeah. You know, I think that's a really good um, question. And I think the theory behind it, I've thought about this because, you know, Carol Sabe, I remember one day um, I said to him, you know, did you come in the same weight that you are now? And what was it when I joined him on day 11 or something? And he said, yeah, I arrived like this um because he had a you know i mean he was really lean really lean he told me that he pretty much just cut carbs out stopped eating and uh like uh was able to get really lean but then i I don't know exactly what the truth is because then someone else told me they asked him before he went what did he do and someone um i don't know if it's the correct it's it's wrong information but they said oh he drank loads of beer and (laughs) I mean, I asked Carol himself and he said he came in lean. So I'll, I'll take that. Uh, Scott Jurek um, lost almost 20 pounds on the trail. I think uh, he went in overweight, um, overweight, weight. Uh, Carl Meltz is pretty much the same. I think, uh, you know, just uh, I don't know what his weight was, but I think he was pretty much the same throughout. I guess for me, um, I definitely lost about, I mean, I'm, I guess I went in there um, at about, I work in kilograms, uh, maybe, I mean, I probably lost about 10 pounds, you know, uh, I didn't, I didn't lose a crazy amount. Yeah, I lost about about 10 pounds. But no, I think the problem is if you go in too heavy, um, this is just my theory. Like, let's say you go in 20 pounds overweight, one, it's going to be harder aerobically to go uphill 
and it's going to be more muscularly damaging to go downhill. And then you're not going to have to eat as much for, say, 10, 15 days. And then suddenly, once your body's burnt all that fat, then you're going to actually be in a situation where, oh, now I've got to eat more food. So this is something I need to adapt to. Whereas I think if you just go in at race weight, you know, you don't need to second guess your calories. You just put in what you need and that's it. So, and, and you're not going to be carrying an extra 20 pounds of fat that you don't need or something. So I, I, I like to think the way to do it is just going at race weight or close to. Um, but there's a bunch of people who have gone in a lot heavier. But, you know, looking at the guys who are the, the faster guys, you know, like me and, and um, you know, everyone, I guess, 45 46 days and under um Carl Meltzer and that I think Scott was the exception I think out of all of us probably Scott was the one who went in the heaviest interesting um yeah Scott Jurek but maybe that was because he uh I don't know he I don't know I I mean I've read his book and and Jen made some funny comments about him saying you know what are you going to use muscle memory and stuff so so I don't know (laughs) and he'd stopped racing for a couple of years so you know so yeah Uh uh-huh yeah he was already like quote-unquote retired at that point and uh, I mean if anyone earned a retirement at that point it was probably Scott given what he had done prior but I'd say uh, so the the interest I, I wonder if there would be like I mean, 20 pounds, I agree. I think that would be an extreme and you're probably going to end up with issues that are like unintended with that sort of a uh, fluctuation. But I just wonder about like maybe like two or three pounds heavier than you would typically be. And just give yourself like a little bit of a buffer for like kind of like worst case scenario type things where you get a stomach issue and all of a sudden you can't eat for a few hours and then you have like a little bit of reserve for something like that. But um I mean, you got to be comfortable too. So like, you know, some people are very uh, in tune with where they are at when they're ready to kind of go and perform. And I would imagine uh, that could weigh on the mental side of things as well. If it was, uh, especially if you're able to get in the food, if you're someone who's, you know, you wonder if these type of projects may just select for people who can just plow through thousands of calories of food without having too much issue versus someone who's going to have a little bit of a queasy stomach with a lot of different variety. Yeah, I would say it's a personal thing. Um, and and uh, yeah, like you say, two or three pounds is nothing. I mean, <clears throat> you know, you're, you're burning, um, you're burning a lot of calories every day. And, and, and those two or three pounds, I've got a little mosquito flying around here. Those two, <laughs> two or three pounds aren't going to last that long, you know, so uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm in Thailand here. So <laughs> What, what's the, what's going on in Thailand? Are you uh, there for something or is that where you call home these days? Um, you know, like uh, I've, I've been running marathons and ultras for over 20 years now. And uh, I guess I only really got competitive from say 2016 onwards. Uh, I, I just, I just did it for fun. And then, um, and then in 2017, I came to Thailand and I started training for this race called the Thailand, the North Face 100K. Mm. And uh, and I noticed a pattern. I, I, I podiumed at this race for four years running, uh, 2017, 18, 19, and 20. And my training prior to it had always been in Thailand. So just being in the sun, uh, drinking uh, mango and coconut shakes and being in the mountains uh, here just really um, 
works well for me and uh you know i'm an online ultra marathon running coach so i'm able to work remotely and i like it so i'm just here training and just enjoying um the the good weather as well just uh i just like it yeah Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors are my friends at LMNT Electrolytes. They have a wide range of electrolyte supplements and are currently offering listeners this podcast a free sample pack with purchase. If you are interested in checking them out and letting them know that you came to them through here, you can go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO or to the show sponsor landing page, which is just zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Links to that are in the show notes as well. One of the other things I really wanted to ask about was, because I'm kind of conflicted to some degree on this, is the proper training for something like this. Because like, Mm. you know, there's a little bit of a foreshadowing of this with the single day stuff where like, you know, you have this hundred mile race you're really never going to do a single workout that perfectly mimics a hundred miles unless you go and run a hundred miles, which is going to be kind of expensive from a training load standpoint. So you oftentimes see ultra runners doing like back-to-back long runs and things like that, trying to like uh, re- sort of mimic what it will be like on race day or like the Western States 100 has their kind of well-known Memorial weekend training thing, thing where they're going like 70 ish miles on the course over three days. And, kind of mimicking a little bit of what you may experience on race day. Is there like an approach that you think is just the best way to go for these long efforts like that from a training standpoint, or are you just kind of soaring, trying to get as fit as you can relative to the train you're going to be on at the intensity that you're going to be doing it. And then just, you know, take it as it comes. I've, I've been watching uh, Jim McConaughey for a couple of years. Um, I really like his approach I mean, he's the self self-supported record holder on the Appalachian Trail, which is also the third fastest known time, which is really impressive. Uh, and 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 he actually did a really interesting podcast with um, a, a guy whose name I can't remember. He works for his, or he was working for his hiking company, um, and they had this discussion on fastestknowntimes.com podcast about what is the best way to train for something like this? And and it was cool because both guys talking, including Joe had experience with this. And, and I think the the, the argument was, you know, I mean, do you do speed work? (laughs) You know, I mean, do you do speed work? Um, Is there any need for that? Um, You know, uh, or do you just go out and hike? You know, is it maybe the best way to get in shape for something like this is to do a through hike, go and hike, uh, you know, a 500 mile or a 2000 mile trail and, and get into, you know, get into trail shape or do you run? I mean, what I did also was watch, uh, you know, again, you've got to look at who set the record and what they did in preparation for that. So I always think that if you want to achieve something and someone's taken a certain path to get there, then that might not be a bad idea in mim- mimicking them a little bit maybe and carol sabay didn't do huge mileage uh you know he didn't do like 120 mile weeks or um but but then i spoke to carol as well when i saw him afterwards and and he said he knew that the pacific crest trail like w- the kind of shape you get in while you're doing something like this is something that you can't like replicate before you start it's impossible because there's no training plan where you're running 400 370 miles a week 
you know, for like a four month block. So there's a level of fitness that you get out there, but I think, yeah, you need to get the balance, right. You need to go in. Um, I mean, my approach right now is I'm making sure I'm doing two good strength sessions every week, you know, and I'm doing full body. I mean, even my chest, I know I don't use my chest to run, but I want to have a balanced fitness, mm -hmm. um, full body, you know, my, my uh, hamstrings, calves, my glutes, my adductors, abductors, uh, quads, you know, my hip flexors, you know, my abs, my obliques, my lower back, the, everything. I'm making sure I'm strong. And then, you know, I actually, I, I've noticed string being, um, or Joe McConaughey actually does speed work as well. And, and, and I saw him do the Arizona trail. And I like the fact that, see, what I did last year was I did a lot of elevation a lot of long slow out eight hour runs in the mountains and you know you take me to a track and i couldn't run fast around a track you know i just i lost my stride a little bit my my stride had shortened my muscles became tight so my approach this year is i realized i got quite high up the fitness ladder um but i feel that i missed a couple of rungs on the way up there so this is the great thing about training for this again. Now, I want to make sure I hit every rung on the ladder of fitness. And one of them um, for me is speed work. Mm -hmm. So I just did some hill repeats a couple of days ago and it felt great. You know, um, I'm going to do a tempo session tomorrow uh, up a mountain, though. And uh, yeah, so. So for me personally, I want to take, I want to use all the different gears I've got in running and I want to arrive really fit because, you know, I just think that, that, you know, I got there on a lot of long, slow runs last year and I want to have more of a, some variety. And also I enjoy speed work, you know, mm -hmm. I enjoy it. Some, I mean, well, it's not just the destination. It's also the process. And I think you've got to enjoy yourself somewhat in your training as well. Mm hmm yeah, I mean, I think where I mean, I'm I'm no expert at this, but I would I, I would imagine what I would think I would do is think about it in like two different phases. One is like obviously you want to be fit for the task at hand, but you also just sort of need to be durable. So like you know, if you get injured out there, if it's a consequential injury, it's, it doesn't matter how fit you are. If you can't move your body, that fitness isn't going to be able to do anything for you. So part of me thinks like doing like the speed work, especially like the uphill stuff that you just mentioned, you know, that's just going to create, if you do it right, like if you do it at a right dosage and kind of, you know, build on it, you're just going to create a more durable frame. And then coupled with the strength work you described, I mean, I think you're just checking a lot of boxes that are going to maybe be things that at the end of the day, you don't necessarily think, oh yeah, that's what got me through day 31 on the Appalachian trail. But you know, if it's just like wear and tear, not catching up to you, then maybe it is what kept you out there at day 31 on the Appalachian trail. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And that, I mean, that's the approach I'm taking. So I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I think, yeah, if you just focus on endurance and get a load of elevation in, but yeah, like everyone's different, you know, again Carl Meltzer you know he 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 doesn't ever go in a gym you know he doesn't go in gyms uh you know there's uh I I know Joe McConaughey uh was in the gym though twice a week uh and 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 uh I'm not sure what Scott Jurek was doing 
Jen Far Davis, she used to get a really heavy backpack and go and do two big 50 mile days back to back on the weekend. And she said she would get in bed and not wash because she wanted to know <laughs> what felt like. And she said she felt sorry for her husband. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's Jen's approach. So yeah, every everyone's um, different. Uh, yeah. Hey, hey, I wanted to ask you a question actually, and I was searching and I couldn't find it anywhere. Um, so I know you were going to run across America. Yeah. And and mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, I, I couldn't find any information. I was really interested. I was really excited about you, but I, I just didn't know what happened. So, I mean, what happened there? Yeah, that's what got me interested about. I mean, I was interested before that, too. But what's continued to keep me interested is that that the, the training side of the equation of like that balance I mentioned between durability and fitness, because ultimately, um, when I was preparing for it, I got injured about, I think it was maybe three or four weeks before I was supposed to start. So yeah. like I went from, I mean, I got to a point where like, if I were to try to do it, it was going to be a situation where I was going to go in with an injury and I maybe would have been able to make it across the country, but the, any sort of record attempt was off the table for the most part at that point. Um, yeah. So I, I, I made some mistakes apparently in training in terms of like the proper, uh, training load for that particular thing. And the, the, I can tell you kind of how I was preparing for it. What I was doing was I didn't really increase my volume above what I would typically do for say like a hundred miler, but I definitely backloaded more of it. So I would do like a couple days where I would put in like a, a good chunk of hours. Like I would try to like simulate what a day would maybe be like out there, you know, trying to cover X number of hours on, um, on the, you know, the roads essentially across the country. And I would do that. You, I built up to doing that kind of like two days in a row. And I had that ankle issue flare up on me at the end of one of those type of buildups. So I think I maybe just overplayed that a little bit, um, before I was ready for it. So that's kind of what got me thinking a little bit more about like, I wonder what the, what application there is here just for like trusting the years and years and years of fitness that you've developed through training and racing ultra marathons, but try to build a physique that's maybe a bit more durable, um, from just like lower leg, like, well, essentially any part of your body when you get out there for that long, um, standpoint. So, I mean, that's why I'm kind of curious about how everyone like yourself are training for these things now, because I, I will probably do it, uh, at some point. But I think like there's probably a discrepancy between the way I prepare for like a typical ultra marathon and the way I think going forward, I would likely prepare myself for something like this. And I think they're probably different enough that I need to either get tired of single day ultras or be done with single day ultras before I really start kind of heading in that direction. So that's kind of the, my thought process at the moment, but um, I could probably be persuaded one way or the other if you got some compelling information for me. <laughs> yeah yeah no sorry i i got, I got nothing compelling <laughs> except for that it's a it's a lot of fun and it's completely different from uh anything you will ever experience mm -hmm. it's a huge adventure yeah yeah no i'm I think, sorry um... to hear that though. i am sorry to hear you got injured i didn't i didn't know i couldn't find it anywhere on the internet and three weeks before 21 days that's um that's devastating. So I'm sorry to hear that. And I look forward to following you when you go out there to do it again, to have a go at it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I just think it's an interesting part of the sport that uh, it's gotten a lot more attention, I think, recently, but um, it's just different enough too. like, I think I learned that and 
Um, I, I, I got this also like question of just like, is it something you can come back from? Like if I were to go and do something like a transcon this year and then go back to doing single day ultras, do I get back to the way I was before? Or is that something that kind of just inherently changes you to the point where now you kind of have to lean into a different type of uh, aspect of the sport too? I think, um, I'm trying to think of, uh, I guess, Joe, Joe is probably the most, um, the most uh, recognizable guy who's sort of gone back and forth with these really long haul stuff and like shorter stuff, even as short as like sub hundred mile stuff, if I um, can think of it. Mm, I would say so. I think you're right there. Yeah. Like he's the only one I can, uh, I can uh, think of to come back from anything like this. I mean, I still feel so. Um, I, I think belief has a lot to do with it as well. I, I mean, belief in your physiological body. I mean, if you mm -hmm. just physically can't run fast, but if you believe you can't run fast, then you don't try, then you won't. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. I really think uh, a good positive mindset will get you a long way. Um, but I guess it all depends on what your goals are. And, you know, it seems that a lot of the people doing these things, I mean, uh, I mean, well, there's a good range of ages, really. But, uh, yeah, people tend to think that, you know, this this kind of super ultra in, endurance stuff is probably best done after your faster stuff um you know i mean even the 100 milers like you um but but that's some people's thoughts i i don't know i mean i don't know i mean if you don't get injured and you look after yourself and you recover well and you take a good you know you take some good six months downtime or four mm -hmm. months downtime not like three weeks or something yeah uh, i don't see why you can't come back and you know, uh, blow out, you know, do get, get another PB. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I think, uh, it depends. I think how close you are to your potential already and how have you achieved your potential? Cause if you haven't achieved your potential, you do something like this, why can't you achieve your potential? I mean, it's not like, I don't think that you're, you're changing anything drastically as long as you're not injured. I mean, why, mm -hmm. why would you slow down? So I, I think it could go either way. Yeah, I tend to agree with you about what you said with just like making sure you're doing the right things kind of around it. I think it's easy to pinpoint, oh, it's this, you know, multi-thousand mile effort that did it to you. And that is maybe kind of the 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 major thing in the picture. But the reality, like you said, is like, yeah, there's a big difference between saying, okay, when I finish this, I'm going to be very gentle with myself for six months and then ease back into things and make sure I check all the boxes and, you know, get myself back into shape in a kind of more conservative manner after that. So I'm not biting off something too big too soon versus, yeah, getting really excited about what you just did, getting some of that like kind of residual soreness out of the legs and already back at it three weeks later, you may just kind of a sort of dulled that mental motivator that was typically there from just the all the fatigue that you took on from that prior project yeah yeah that, i mean that, totally like you you've got to you've got to be sensible with these things it's it's a long way it takes a long time and i mean if it's true that you should take one day off for every 10 miles running 100 miles <laughs> you, you got to take some uh I don't know what the math is on that, but you got to take some time off. <laughs> yeah, some of you guys aren't running until your 60th birthday at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, awesome. Well, Christian, 
I'm excited. Uh, when when is the the next attempt? You said that you're kind of gearing up for for what will likely be your final push on the Appalachian Trail for a for a point to point standpoint. Yeah. Um, so I mean, like I said, if I can if I can raise the funds to make it happen, I mean, I'd love everyone listening to go to my website um, and and just put a couple of dollars in the GoFundMe. You know, also my dad just had his first chemotherapy session yesterday. He's on his like fifth, fifth cancer now in two years. So, you know, that's a thing that's close to my heart. Um, and uh, yeah, to make this happen. Um, and if I can raise the funds, it'll be beginning June 1st, uh, which is like 20 days before summer solstice, 20 days afterwards. So I actually get the most amount of daylight for those 40 days of the year. That's my um, own thing there. I didn't take that from anybody else. So uh, yeah, June 1st, um, heading south. I mean, that's the window. If there's a bad weather front come in, we'll change it. Or if uh, I need an extra couple of weeks training or something, but it's going to be like June 1st, heading south from Katahdin. And um, uh, that'll be the start date. And there'll be live tracking as well, which will be on my website. Uh, I got a pretty cool website that I created myself on Squarespace. it's got all, also information about other past record holders on there and stuff. And uh, um, yeah, live tracking is fun because uh, last year I had uh, I had Scott Jurek, uh, Carl Meltzer, Joe McConaughey, uh, Carol Sabe and, and me on there on the live tracker. So you've got all these dots and uh, um and, and then you've got my dot and it's like this 2000 mile map and uh, you know, you just like seeing where the dots are. So yeah, that's always good. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I'll definitely link all that stuff to the show notes. So the listeners can head over and check out what you're up to and then hopefully follow along when you're out there this June. And yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm excited to follow along. I think it'll be uh, a fun way to kill some of the summer, summer days following your progress on the AT, but uh, thanks a bunch for taking some time and sharing all this with us. Well, Zach, thanks for having me on the podcast. And um, yeah, it's been a pleasure. I've been following you a long time and it's nice to meet you. And uh, yeah, so uh, follow along. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks again, Christian. Hey, folks. Thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to a hundred miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athletes guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program so you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance-related fitness goals. 
You can find all those things on my website at zachbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 